Welcome to the Food Junkies Recovery Story Podcast. Here we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of everyday people actively working on their recovery from food addiction. I hope to inspire you and increase your awareness about recovery from food addiction. Here we will talk about personal stories of recovery and the many ways to live in recovery. We will focus on the various solutions so that you can choose the best option for yourself. I want to encourage you to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make changes for yourself, tell others about your changes, and our message of hope will spread. Well, I'm super excited about my guest today. It's Dr. Vera Tarman, and she was instrumental in changing my recovery. And uh, so I just am in awe that I am able to interview her myself for our podcast. So I'm going to jump right into the questions because Dr. Vera, I want to be very respectful of your time. And I really am excited to ask these questions. Could you please share your personal journey with addiction and recovery? Uh, Okay. Well, that could take a whole podcast. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you the very short version, but before I start, if I can just say, I, I, I'm really thrilled that you're doing this uh, food junkies podcast stories because it feels to me like it's, it's, it's just an example of the evolution of our community of food addicts in recovery that we are um, just exploding with more resources. And it's so thrilling for me because I guess this is part of my story, because I started years ago, like, uh, I mean, I started when I discovered food in my in my childhood, but in trying to um, uh, get the message out about food addiction, that was at least, um, I don't know, 15 years ago, something like that. Uh, and uh, it, I was alone. And I wasn't really alone, because of course, there was Phil Wardell, and there was Bitten Johnson, and but I didn't know about these people. I didn't know they existed. I thought I was on my own. Um, and uh, uh, talking till I was blue in the face and people would go, hmm, kind of interesting. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. But ah, don't be silly. That's not really that real. That And then occasionally a few lights would um, show in some people. Yeah, that makes sense. But it never went beyond that. And now I see this uh, evolution of things are just going beyond and beyond. And it's such a thrill. So, uh, CJ, I thank you so much for stepping up and uh, taking this next uh, step forward. You know, we're we're gonna make a difference. We are. I mean, we're 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 like the uh, Davids with the big Goliath uh, food industry, and uh, we, we get enough uh, slingshots thrown at that that big Goliath of the food industry. We may make a difference. But I, I think we are. So anyway, I had to say that first because I'm so you. thrilled. Yeah. Um, okay. So my journey. Um, I, I don't want to go too on too much on about that part, but uh, I, I well, you want me to start from the beginning. You can start wherever you, whatever you're comfortable in sharing, because I know that it's been, it's like you said, you've had quite a journey. So just jump in wherever you want to. All right. I I think that uh, my awareness of addiction in, in within myself was early, early on. I realized like many of us, well, I think all of us who are addicts realize that anything that I wanted, I, I, if I discovered that I liked it, then one was never enough. If, even if I didn't need the extra, I might need it next week. I might need it tomorrow. So I better stock up. And that kind of mentality of having to stock up, um, was right from the get go. Like I would just be so pleased when I discovered, Oh, I need this and I like this. And so I better uh, make sure I have enough of it. And, uh, then of course, what happened is, is that I would have whatever the stock up was that day or or soon, much sooner than I thought. Uh, and so I realized I better not have too much of this around because I, I can't save. I, I'm, I'm doing it to save, but I can't save. Um, uh, and anyway, it was always a battle between don't have too much because you'll just have it all now versus but I have to have it mentality. And that was with everything, not just food. Um, but of course, I discovered food in that in that path, in that journey. And I, I guess my first discovery about food was as a child, like Halloween or something like that. I, I come from a generation and also a family where we didn't eat all the time like we do now. Um, and, you know, Christmas was, uh, holidays were where the extra special delightful foods were, and they were always really important. But in the in the uh, between times, 
there would still be the extra special weekend because we would do shopping. And that's when maybe my parents, my father would go and get like the, the I can mention real food in this podcast, um, like, um, I, you know, the big bag of donuts and uh, some other stuff. And th- those would last a day or two. And he didn't seem to care. And so I realized, well, this is something that um, uh, I liked. But the thing I found about food, unlike when I discovered cigarettes and then when I discovered um, in my day, um, thank God, therefore, for the grace of God, go I, um, thank God the drugs that are available today were not as available to me. Um, and so the drugs that were available, uh, like LSD and cannabis and uh, uh, mainly that, uh, I couldn't really hurt myself with those at that time. So anyway, that was part of my story as well. Um, but food I found was um, good, but it only lasted, I don't know, 20, half an hour. And that just wasn't enough because then I'd be full and I'd be uncomfortably full. And so it just wasn't enough. So smoking a joint or even cigarettes, because you can have a whole pack of cigarettes. Oh, you'll feel sick, but there's only so much you can eat. It was disappointing because because uh, it would be nice, but it wouldn't last. And you know, the bag of donuts might go in that night, but then I'd feel sick. I hadn't yet learned how to throw up, um, uh, purge. Uh, so uh, food was always on the table, but kind of disappointing and not top on the list. But when I became a um, I guess in my 20s in university, I discovered the wonderful tool of throwing up, um, which meant that I could eat more, just get rid of it, and um, and then continue to eat. But, you know, of course, I'm being sarcastic because that was a terrible um, way of living. I mean, I'd get sore. Oh, my God. Indigestion and burning mouth and oh, just horrible. But nevertheless, food became um, a, a, a viable substance and i had to quit alcohol and marijuana because i was in university and and uh they were starting to affect my my schoolwork um so food became the substitute for i mean it just became the thing that i did i think i'm going on too long here um but anyway that but it, it, it really what i'm trying to show is that there was this phenomenon of i always have to have more and food became um, a, a great substance or a great way to do that especially when i learned how to uh, throw up and, and then because i was able to have more i think now looking back that's when the addiction started to develop i was predisposed because i had this more mentality and then food finally fit the bill um and thank God, pills like opiates and stuff weren't around then, or I would have done those. I, and in my day, to get drugs like that, you had to know people. And I just was too much of a geek to know the right people. They would just laugh at me, go away. But uh, shoot, no problem. Anybody would bake you a nice cake and no problem. Um, but anyway, I discovered that the uh, addictive dynamic, um, well, I didn't discover it. I experienced it um, so that it eventually, the binging and the purging, um, what I discovered is it wasn't just feeling satisfied. It took over, it took over my, my mental landscape more than anything else had. I mean, if I was high on LSD, I certainly couldn't read a book, but I knew that I knew that as I took the pill that, 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 you know, the the next day or two was gone with food. I didn't expect that that would happen, but the next day it was like the next years were gone because it was all about um, even though I could talk, in between the, the moments while I'm not talking or the other person is not talking, it's about the food. Like the food was always a third loud toddler in the room banging, saying, come on, you got to run, you got to eat. It was like this annoying barking dog all, all the time. And oh my God, that uh, that's when um, I knew I had a problem. So I'm going to stop there and take another question. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I There's so much there that I can identify with. The third toddler in the room, I can so relate to that. I was would be having a conversation with somebody who I'm very interested in what they're saying. And it's that sneaky voice that's just off to the right, just talking in your ear. And you're like, I'm trying to concentrate and you can't. So I can totally relate. And I think many people that are listening to this podcast will be able to relate to that as well. So I appreciate you going into that very much. What was the turning point? Like why, what, what was the turning point that you sought recovery or what was it that 
flipped in you or changed in you that you thought, I need to do something about this? Okay, well, so I, I, um, one of the things I had discovered is that if I wanted the food to go away, I could find something else to do, like basically substitute the addiction or transfer the addiction. Um, and so I, I, this was my life, this, this third person in the room, this chatterer, this loud, obnoxious person, you're trying to listen to a concert and they're in the back talking too loud. <laughs> anyway, I just got used to that. Um, but I learned that I could tone it down if I did other things, if I if I drank a little bit instead, if I, um, uh, I, I just accepted this was who I was. I didn't know, I didn't even feel bad about it. It was just like, that's me. Um, and it's not the kind of thing I would have talked about to somebody else. Like there you are, CJ, saying this was your experience. I would have been like, really? Let's talk about that. But I was, I accepted it, but it was part of my private life, which was, I guess, shame. Um, I was ashamed of. It's just like we all have a private self, and it's not the kind of thing I would tell you, not even a partner uh, I would tell. It was private. Um, so I didn't know. Um, uh, so what I learned is how do I manage this part of myself that nobody that I don't talk about, but, you know, how can I manage it? Um, but it got harder and harder to manage it as it became more and more um, loud. Uh, and and at the same time as this is happening, so that started in my 20s and then developed and developed and developed. And by the time I was 45-ish, something like that, I, I by now I had realized I have to stop. And I had tried already in the years to do things like travel, like for example, in the in in my day in the twenties, people went to India, they went to South America, they went to China. Like that was like take a year off and do something like that. And uh, I went to um, England and then to India. So I thought if I travel for a year, I'm going to be so excited about all these new sites, and I'll be working at some place. I'll be so busy and talking to people that I won't think about food. That's not what happened at all. What happened is, is that I, I, I focused in on my hotel room or my, my um, uh, hostel room or whatever it was and tried to figure out, even if I had to share a room with somebody else, how can I eat this stuff without them noticing? Um, and how can I then throw up later without them noticing? Like it became about the food no matter where I was, which we know the geographical care does not work. I, I had tried a substitute. I tried many things um, to try to manage this thing that was within me that I didn't talk about to anybody. I did go to uh, a hospital uh, at one point to, to say, I went to an emerge uh, to say, I cannot, please admit me, I cannot go home because I will eat the whole night. Because that's what's ended up happening sometimes. I would have a whole binge night, a binge purge, binge purge, like until two or three or four in the morning when I was so sick and then hopefully exhausted with palsy. So I don't want this anymore. Lock me up. And they just looked at me and said, um, okay, we'll send you to an eating disorder clinic in two weeks. Anyway, forget that. So what was the aha moment for me was many years of this, um, I was uh, already now uh, uh, working as a doctor in addiction medicine. And um, I just one day said, I know this doesn't make sense, but I'm just going to treat this thing like a drug. Now, I didn't identify as having a marijuana addiction because I could always stop. I could eat food instead. Uh, alcohol at that point, I didn't identify as an alcoholic because I could stop drinking if I could eat food. Like it was always a, a great solution to those other things. But I thought, so I'm not really an addict. Now, of course, I, I see that I was, but then, but I'm going to use the addiction tools that I'm teaching everybody. There I am a hundred pounds more telling them how to, anyway, if you don't know it, you don't know it. Um, uh, anyway, I'm going to try. And so I tried, I said, I'm going to use abstinence. And I did that. And lo and behold, that chatter went from a, I don't know, 13 out of 10 to a 8 out of 10. Still there, but less. And and over time, less and less and less. And then I fell for the stupidity that we all do of, I'm feeling so much better. Now I finally am able to, you know, have that extra stash that I want and I can maintain it as an extra stash. I won't eat it all the time. But of course, that didn't work. And then I discovered that that, that just didn't work. Uh, so 
I knew I had to be abstinent, but I couldn't get the idea that you have to be abstinent forever, one day at a time, of course, but forever. And it wasn't until I read uh, Nicola Vina's uh, um, article. So I'm an addictions physician. I'm reading uh, uh, addictions um, articles. Um, and her article popped up. Uh, I mean, so in a sense, she was the first person that validated my experience by her rat study, which said that rats choose um, sucrose and even sweetener over cocaine. And I thought, oh my God, she's saying this is a true addiction. That was my aha moment when I had that scientific validation. Wow. Now, how long ago was that when when you found that paper? Um, well, I think it was in, let me see, um, when did that come out? I want to say it's either 2008 or 2018. I don't know. It was it was in the first uh, uh, journal of addiction medicine. It was uh, on. Um, what, what, oh my gosh, what's her name? Oh, she's my hero in in the uh, in that journal. Can't remember her name right now, um, which is terrible. Uh, Nora Volko. Nora Volko. She she's uh, the uh, head of the uh, um, Society of Addiction Medicine, of which I belong. Um, and uh, she started talking about it, it. She started talking about food addiction and included a whole journal just on this stuff. Uh, and Nicole Avina's article is in there. And I think it was 2018. Does that make sense? No, it can't. It has to be 2008 because my book came out in 2019. So yes, it was. Uh, 2008. So that's not that long ago. But anyway, since then, I had this paper in my hand, this journal in my hand, and I thought, I am going to go on a rampage now and talk till I'm blue in the face like I'm doing right now about this subject. And also, while I'm talking to others, I'm talking to myself. And that made the difference for me. I think I put sugar at that point, because it's been about 15 years or something. Um, and um, I started talking about it. And yeah, that, that's what made the difference. Well, that's awesome. I like I love that story. Like I especially can identify with you had tried things and it didn't work. And then you tried something different and it didn't work. And then you try something and then you kept trying. So you were after recovery, even though you didn't know that you were after recovery. Yeah. I was just wanting to quiet that toddler <laughs> in my head. Exactly. Exactly. And also, okay. I was really, really uh, dismayed at my weight. I was uh, 240 pounds, which was pretty uncomfortable. Like it was, I didn't like how I looked, but you know, I could live with that. But I couldn't, I couldn't walk easily. I was huffing and puffing. And there I am, you know, a doctor telling people to eat well, so that they don't get diabetes. And that's I wasn't doing that. Uh, so I mean, there was a part of me that was like, I, I got to stop this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can identify with that too. Mine's not from a doctor perspective, but from a mother's perspective that mm -hmm. I wanted to model good behavior for my four children. So I can totally identify with that as well. And my children were all athletes. So I didn't want to be the unathletic mother of the athletic children. That didn't make sense to me. So I'm can... actually really lucky that your children um, stepped out. Like they didn't use you as a model then because they found another way. Well, that is part of my story as well. I'm I'm a I'm a road uh cyclist and I got into road cycling and the children followed me into it. So ah. and they became road cyclists too. Uh but I was determined I was I have the obesity gene and I'm using air quotes too and I have the addiction gene. <laughs> and uh so I was determined to give them every advantage that I could think of to keep them from having to go through what I had gone through. So that's part of my story as well. All right, going on. So you kind of addressed it a little bit, but maybe you can think of, of one particular incident or anything else that how did you overcome obstacles and setbacks in your recovery? Oh, okay, so I guess I, the, the probably the biggest setback was me believing that uh, I, I could eventually learn to moderate that I was kind of going too far. Like people would always say about me, Barry, you're so extreme. You're doing another one of those diets. And I would say that to myself too. You're so extreme. Isn't really an addiction. Now I, I had Nicole Avina's um, article, which, which um, um, cemented in my head. Yes, it is an addiction. And yes, that's me. I mean, I had a family history of addiction my mother was an alcoholic. My father, um, I don't know if he was, but he certainly drank too much. Um, so I, I can, I don't have to look far to um, uh, see that. Um, so 
I was in the way of my uh, own um, way because even when I realized I had to abstain myself and stay abstinent, um, I knew that, but I couldn't push that. I still felt like I struggled with it to the point where that the, the, the next obstacle was when people said to me, Yuri, you're so extreme, I would kind of deflate and go, yeah, I am extreme. I wouldn't give in, but I would feel bad about it and then therefore defensive. And the biggest obstacle, I, I think, I want to say myself, was also the, it, partly because it was the social um, peer influence in other words, the, the lack of, of their believing it, which then kind of got me into not believing it. And I would hold on going, but I know it's true. I, I didn't have peace of mind around that. And so I got very defensive. And if people wanted to, uh, um, I, I, I ended up, it wasn't, a, I don't know. I don't know how to say this. Um, I just ended up being very defensive about the topic. I didn't have the nice, firm boundaries of, Thank you. I know that you're giving me this. I know you want this because you care for me, but thank you. No, I would just say, don't darn, get away. You're stop. Anyway, so um, that I think that was, uh, it actually continues to this day to be a bit of a struggle. I don't know. I don't know how to fix that. But anyway. When you learn how to fix it, could you please tell me? Because yeah. I have the same issue. Um, yeah, I've gotten that extreme comment many, many yeah. times. So. I can identify with that as it's well. Say, get out of my business. But, you know, food is everybody's business. That's the problem. It's like you go anywhere and they want the first thing they say is, can I get you something? I say, no, thank you. Are you sure? And it starts right when you walk in the door and you're taking off your boots. Um, I, I would really like to see that that we just go back to, can you just have like, you know, can you just have a, a coffee or a glass of water? I'd love to say yes to just that. Anyway, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Okay, what coping mechanisms or strategies have you found most effective in main uh, maintaining your sobriety? Uh, well, I think that um, I belong to a twelve-step uh, group, and there is support there. Uh, so, having support is a major coping mechanism because then, remember, I was just talking about the social dynamic. I I could have, and I did have uh, people easily, like especially before I became clear about the fact that I had to be abstinent, um, talk me back into it. So now I have another social buffer to counteract the ongoing today, still today, come on, you can have a little bit of this. I, I have a long, um, strong community that's like long, long, long standing, strong community that says, no, you can't, they're going to say that, don't worry about it, it's okay. So it, it helps, that really helps, uh, the support piece of that. Uh, but the other thing is, is I, I get tools, and this is not specific to twelve step. This would this could work for you know sweet sobriety or or other other uh, support networks out there. Um, uh, but I get tools like slogans, for example, and and um, they're just little mini mental statements that I make in my mind when I'm in an awkward position. And my favorite one, it's a coping mechanism, is I don't eat this no matter what. Uh, that is a slogan that works for me in anything because I know in my head that um, I have told myself, but the slogan will address this, that if something bad were to happen, if I were to lose my dog, if I were to lose my partner, my job, then I could have a drink. Come on, anybody would, you know, the death of a, a loved one. Um uh, and, you know, people would understand that completely. But I got this thing. And, of course, eat. Like, like come on. Who cares? That, that's so minor compared to this major thing that's happening. Um, but if I have this statement of no matter what, I will get through this without this food. It, it, even though my addict brain will be saying, how can you be so focused on yourself? Food is so important when it's this bigger thing that's more important. I'll say, yeah, 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 thank you. No matter what, I'm not eating. Uh, 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 no matter what, even if the person will be hurt, even if uh, I'm going to be hungry otherwise, no matter what, I won't eat. So having that kind of, um, it's, it's like a guardrail for me that uh, keeps me on the path. And that's really important. That's, um, that's uh, actually, yours is very similar to mine when I was getting abstinent too. And I, I've actually given this one out 
many times myself, no matter what, don't eat, don't eat no matter what. Now, obviously I'm not talking about real food. I'm just talking about the food that's not my food. Uh But I would say that over and over and over again in my head, Uh I was in sticky situations, like a mantra that I could just concentrate on just to get me out of those situations. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's it. We have a lot in common, Vera. Um, <laughs> We're both food addicts. <laughs> yes, this is true. I like the I like your approach to recovery, though. Too. I mean, there's so many different ways to get abstinent, obviously, and everything. Um, things work differently for different people, but I really can identify with a lot of what you're saying. Okay, my favorite question because I am a book absorber. And I see, even though the audience can't see how many books are behind your head. um, So one of my favorite questions is to pick your brain on what are your favorite books? What, what made them, what books influenced your recovery? Um, Okay. Well, you know, it's a, it's an interesting question about books because uh, I come from uh, a world of no social media. I mean, now obviously, but uh, when I, you know, in the, uh, in the old days of my school life and all that, I mean, there was no social media. And so, like I said, I thought I was alone and I didn't talk about it, but there were always books to read and books were like, you know, these imaginary friends that, oh, wow. So somebody's experienced this. Um, and and I had learned early on that I'm, I'm a big reader, that books were a, a way to explore the inner life, not alone, um, you know, and, and whatnot. And so there I am, you know, in the wilds of of no man's land in food, trying to figure out why I always need to have more and why I have to throw up and all that kind of stuff. So whenever I saw a book, I would voraciously eat it up, essentially. And I think one of the first books that I discovered was uh, Sugar Blues, where they talked about the, the, the toxic effect of sugar. And I thought, oh, my God, that is so right on. Now, he didn't really say anything more than that. Um, uh, is that was that Duffy? I can't remember his the author's name, but anyway. Um, but just the fact that he identified that that was a problem was like, yeah, that that really. Anyway, somebody else in the world um, was talking about this substance that was dangerous to use, just like a, a drug was dangerous to use. And then I think the probably the most important book that got me thinking, maybe there's a world of recovery around this, because I was already thinking about uh, addiction, food as an addiction. But really, early days, um, because I didn't know Bitten, I didn't know Esther, I didn't know um, Phil Wardell. They, they were all people in the field, same time as I was, but we didn't know about each other. Um, uh, if we did, then we would have been having these conversations then together, but we didn't. Um, anyway, uh, uh, the first book that I stumbled across that was treating this as an addiction was Potatoes Not Prozac. And I don't remember exactly when that came out, um, but um, we, we did a podcast on that because I, it was so important for me. Um, and she talked about um, uh, how food was an addiction and talked about the neurochemistry of it. So she talked a lot about potatoes, serotonin, but it didn't matter. It was it's an addiction and it's like a community that she's presenting and there's a food plan. Um, not one that would have worked for me, but, and, and actually she's not a believer of full abstinence either, but it didn't matter at that point. It was just, it was a, a concept of an addiction. And uh, so I would say potatoes, not Prozac was the first one that hit me as, Oh, there's actually a treatment that this is a condition that can be treated. Uh, that was really important. And then the next really super important book was um, End of Overeating by David Kessler. And David Kessler at that time was the head of um, uh, some big or FDA, I think it was, some organization in the U.S. So he had a very large voice. Um, and uh, he was talking about, um, I think he called it the hyperpalatability of foods. And I actually was like, oh, my God. Uh, this is somebody who's talking about the food industry as a deliberate, um, complicit player in this problem that I have. So these books were really influential. And that one, I just read that from cover to cover multiple times. And I actually wrote him and he answered um, saying, this, this, I'm already an addictions doctor. I said, why are you not calling this end of overeating addiction? It is an addiction, right? Um, and he wrote back very kindly um, and said, um, 
I'm calling it hyperpalatable because nobody likes the word addiction and they won't read it. Um, and that was, a, I think, a bestseller book. So he was smart in terms of marketing. I've tried to get him on the podcast, but he's said he's just too busy and I think he's doing other things. But anyway, so those three books were uh, pretty crucial in the early days. All these other books that we have today didn't exist then. And, and um, I'll just say that it was around that time that people were starting to say to me, Vera, you should write a book uh, because it doesn't exist. And maybe it did, but we didn't know about it. Um, and I just remember, I just kept saying, I don't want to write a book. It's too, it caught, it's, 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 it's hard to write a book. It's hard. It's mentally very draining, especially if you're working. Um, but I was convinced that I had to write a book um, uh, eventually. So I did. And I teamed up with Phil because I used a lot of his material uh, in the first edition, uh, and that's how that first book got started in 2014, which was, if 2008 was the Nicola Vina, it took that long to get that book out. Well, and still, in a, and it's still a shorter period of time. That's six years from the yeah. first time that you found out that it was addiction. I mean, I, I'm impressed. I don't, I'm, I mean, maybe I've only known about it you know, a couple of years now, maybe three years, going on three years. I don't think I would have the wherewithal to write a book. Well, I, I did have, short- uh, in the first edition, I did have, uh, I used a lot of Phil's concepts, like the um, uh, normal eater um, and the, the food addict and the eating disorder, all that kind of stuff. And then the second edition, 2019, I started to include a lot more information. So that if anyone's wondering, those two books, it's the 219 that you want to get, not the 214. Okay. Well, that's helpful. Now I'm going to have to go look. I feel confident. I have the, I have the 2019. I know I do. So yeah. <laughs> yours was the second book that I read, um, but the first one about food addiction. So I'm very grateful that you wrote the book. Whoever pushed you into doing it or whoever the people are that pushed you into doing it, I'm very grateful for it. And I'm yeah. sure several of our listeners are too. Yeah, thank you. I wish that the publishers would have been more interested. That was a that was a it took a year to get even in the door of some of the publishers. And they just kept yeah, I can't believe it. They just kept saying to me, it's a niche topic. And uh, they were already worried about niche niche publishing was already starting to go down. And they wanted something that would be a clear bestseller. So they they I couldn't get the uh, American publishers interested. I had to go with the Canadian one, which I'm very grateful that they they took me on. I mean, Believe me, I'm grateful. Absolutely. I think it worked out the way it was supposed to. Yeah. Okay. So I love this question. Are there common misconceptions about addiction and recovery that you'd like to address? Yeah, I think, okay, the the first one, okay, I'm going to give you two. Um, One is that about addiction recovery that um, people... I don't know how to say this, but people, especially in the 12 step world, people are so afraid of this concept of the higher power that they cut out a a huge um, wealth of free support. Um, And, and in the secular programs, eventually you have to bring in some level of spirituality. You you have to, I think you do. Um, and, and I would like to make a, a, a statement that um, when we talk about the higher power or spirituality, these are terms that we use today. In, the, in, in previous um, decades, we would have used the word metaphysics. We would have used just um, philosophy. We would have used just higher order thinking, just something outside of me, but the larger um, worldview perspective of um that that i think that that's really important and to to find your own version a, a name for that and don't get caught up in the language of what we use today like higher power or spirituality you know i i know for many years when i saw books on you know spirituality i thought oh my god that's so silly i don't i don't even want to read that and then i started reading and i thought oh geez that's actually not any different than uh, you know aristotle and plato they, they they plato they said the same stuff but in different language it's all the same stuff we're trying to understand the universe outside of me and and i think that to get recovery you have to go beyond the self because the self is where addiction sits and the solution is it's because we're so focused on self. How do I make me feel better that I forget that if I try to 
um, make the world better, I feel better. Like it's anyway, that's the first misconception is um, I don't know if that's a misconception or an obstacle, but to, to don't get caught up in the language of recovery because we are all talking about the same thing. Uh, that's the first thing. Um, oh my gosh. What was the other one I was going to say? Can you ask that question again? Yes, of course. Are the, are there common misconceptions about addiction and recovery that you would like to address? Yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I knew, I knew that would help. Um, the other one is that uh, people uh, always, including myself, would say, you want me to quit sugar? You want me to quit whatever it is? How will I? I mean, for me, I was a big night eater. How will I sleep at night? Because how will I get through the night when I wake up in the middle of the night? Like, I need this stuff. And 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 uh, other people will say, you can't deprive people of these normal things. They're not normal, first of all. Sugar is not normal. It is a toxin that's taken out of normal foods. And, and it, it, you, you take the toxin out, it becomes a poison. Uh, it's not normal anymore. But anyway, how can you deprive people? Um, you're going to make people live the rest of their life. I'd rather be a, 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 a beautiful looking, what is the thing? I'd rather be a dead uh, um, and have a great life than, you know, old and miserable. I don't know, some some phrase like that. Common misconception. There is a period of time of deprivation. We call it pause. We call it post-acute withdrawal. We just call it withdrawal. And then, then three weeks later, 10 days later, maybe three months later, you will be free. So the common misconception is, yes, there is deprivation, but it is short-lived. There is actually a, a, a miracle on the other side. And um, that, yeah, the common misconception is, is that you'll have a miserable life if you quit your your a drug, uh, your food of drug of choice, whatever it is. Yeah. You'll be actually freer than you could imagine. And that's partly where the uh, higher power thing comes in. Because if I'm sitting counseling somebody to say this, they're looking at me going, that's impossible. And so then if I if I know they have a higher power or a, a, another power and other um, perspective, I can say, put your hope on that belief that you can't see it now, but there is another world that you're going to move into, which is one without that substance, and it will be better. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I do rub up against the um, bump up against the spirituality uh, component. One of the things that I started using with um, people is um, wise mind. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and the other one is, because I have um, a sibling that's in recovery as well and cannot stand the word recovery. And so I said, <laughs> could we please, let's just change it to growth mindset. And then they could wrap their mind around that. So mm. when I'm talking to that member of my family, I call it a growth mindset. And yeah. uh, that way your hope is on something else other than yourself. Because if I have to, that my best thinking got me into this situation. So my best thinking is not going to get me out. I'm going to need something else. Yeah. And that's something else is that, that very thing you're talking about, growth mindset, firepower, whatever. Yes. Hope. Yeah, hope. Exactly. Yeah. Yay. Which is the reason why I wanted to do this podcast is yes. to give people hope. All right, moving on. What ways has your life changed since you started recovery? Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, that 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 annoying toddler in the background is still there. But um it, it's I, I I you know, I like to say that it was at one point a 13 out of 10. It was just ridiculous. Uh, and then it went down, and I would say now it's uh, it's probably a two or a three. It's not gone, except if I'm really engrossed in something. Like I mean, you know, we're talking now. I I haven't been thinking about food because I'm engrossed in something. But you know, if it's a general day and I'm doing things and then not doing things, it's about a two or three. And it and it manifests itself in, geez, when is it time to eat again? Oh, it's a it's a right now it's quarter to twelve on my on my schedule. So you know I eat around twelve, one o'clock. That means I get to eat soon. It's in my mind, but not not it's not like, oh geez, what what can I have until then? Like it, it, it all that stuff is gone. If if it goes up to a four, which it might when I'm annoyed, usually when I um I'm feeling upset about something like I need to cry or something like that. Um, I don't know that I need to cry. I just know that that 
thing is up to a four out of 10. It's up higher. And so I'm potentially at risk uh, of relapse, except, except I've got my no matter what plastered in my head at, on every avenue. Um, but uh, that's that's it. Yeah. Okay. So now that you are in recovery, can you tell me, or can you tell our listeners really, what is a day in the life of Vera's in in daily recovery? Like, what are your things that you do daily to support your recovery? Um, yeah. So this is an interesting question because, you know, how how is it different for me now when I'm not focusing on the food anymore because it was so encompassing? Um I was always really busy because I'm busy doing things in between all those food thoughts. And so now that uh, the food thoughts are contained and, and they're usually closer to the time when it's time to eat because I'm getting hungry, that makes sense. Um, I, that means I have a lot of time in between my meals that I get to do other things. And so a day in the life of me now is I, I still work. I, I, I'm uh, in my last I have a sort of five to 10 year retirement plan in my head, which I'm slowly starting to um, unpack things. Um, so until now, I'm really busy with work. Um, and then I do all sorts of stuff in between. So I'm pretty busy. And, and uh, some people say, I don't know how you do that. And I think to myself, it's a lot easier than how I used to do it with food there as well. Like it's actually manageable now. It wasn't manageable then. I was just always flying off the like upset all the time, like a temper. I, I would yell all the time and, and get upset all the time because I was always max with the food as well as the, the busyness. Now um, I, I'm a much nicer person because I don't have that extra additional chatter that keeps driving me nuts. I mean, really, it's like a kid playing in the background loud all the time or crying all the time. You just, you just want to say, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's that's not happening anymore. So I can can actually manage my day. So I mean, it's in in the morning. Um, I I have my breakfast, and it, like first of all, I have a very structured like I weigh and measure my food. So there's no thinking about what I'm going to eat. I know what I'm going to eat the day ahead. I just sit down and do what I have to do, and and my food preparation, of which I spend probably a half an hour to an hour a day, is part of a meditative process. It's just. I do it as part of, and, you know, if I can think to myself, how can I have time to do this? Well, I had lots of time to binge before this, this, I've got lots of food time has gone from 80% of my life to 10% of my life. So that's fine. That's fine. So I don't mind uh, food preparation and stuff like that. So I, I, I get up in the morning. Um, I, I do some level of acknowledgement for um, the day ahead. Um, that I'm an, an addict, uh, and that there's things that I have to do. So it's, it's not, it's, I, I don't really have a practice of meditation. I should, but I don't really, um, but I do have some acknowledgement in the morning of, of, uh, the day ahead in terms of my food. Um, I make sure that I walk a lot everywhere I can. I walk. So I get in at least an hour a day. It's not that much, but it's enough. Um, and, uh, let me see at the end of the day, um, I always do a tallying up of what I need to fix. If I've done something that I don't feel comfortable about, I'll, I won't go to sleep if I can avoid it. If I can send an email off or do something to sort of rectify, it's like a step 10 in the 12 step program. Um, like keep up to date with all of my transgressions and deal with them if I can. And then I always do a gratitude list at the end of the day. I'm so grateful about this and this and this. I, I know in terms of my own spiritual practice, I, I would say right now today, it's mainly what am I grateful for? Um, I, I'm forever trying to go to that place, especially when I'm feeling grumpy. It's like, okay, what are you grateful for? Yeah. All right. I like, um, I, I'm big into gratitude. I hit the gratitude in the morning and in the evening, especially where, for me, it's where it concerns my children, I'm Yeah, grateful, you know, that they're safe and they're happy and they're healthy and all of those things. So I, and I incorporated that for my 12 step work as well, even though I'm not part of a 12 step program anymore, it is definitely something I do daily because I find it very valuable to focus on what's important. So I appreciate that. How do you maintain and continue to prioritize your recover, recovery life daily? 
Uh, yeah, well, I would say the main thing, because I belong to a group that's pretty, um, I want to say it's not restrictive. It has, the restrictions are helpful for me. I see them as guardrails. Um, I have to think every day, what what are my meals? What is my day like? And how will my meals fit into that? Um, so if I have to travel, oh God, it ends up being a real nuisance because I can't just pick up something at the at the airport. I have to think, well, will they have what I can eat? Um, and and uh, the timing, it, 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 you know, if there's an air, the way that the airports are, you, you can't just bring in food. You have to, I, they won't let you bring it in if it's liquid and all that kind of stuff. So I have to, there's a lot of planning ahead. Um, so I have to think of my day and then plan my foods around my day. And, and uh, that's a priority for me. If I can't eat something, if I think I'm going to be challenged, I might not even do, like, I'll go to that extent. I might not even do on the event. Like there's some, um, events like late at night um a concert I used to go to concerts all the time I mean partly I'm just I don't want to do that stuff anymore I just want to go to bed instead but um if there's going to be booze I don't want to bother because I do not want to um uh, be in I just don't want to be in that environment anymore um so I'll actually make choices about um uh, if I can do a substance, when I quit popcorn, for example, I couldn't go to movies because popcorn. There was no point in being in a movie without popcorn in my mind at that point. And so I stopped going to movies until uh, for about three years. Now I can go, and uh, the popcorn smell is more just annoying because I don't want that chatter. But I'm not tempted to have it anymore. So uh, my priority uh, food is: can I do the event? And um, if I am going to, how can I plan it? It's very important to me. And, and you know, I, I, I've, in the old days, I would say, how can you do that? But it would, I would ruin it. I would go to something uh, and then I would eat or drink too much. And then I would ruin the event anyway. So it's, it's already ruined. <laughs> I may as well ruin it on my terms. <laughs> That's good. There's boundaries. There's um, guardrails, as you said. There's, there's exactly. They're worth putting up, right? Because yes, you already yes, know yes. what's on the other side of them. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So what is something that you're still personally working on in recovery? Um, well, I guess I guess what I'm still working on is I have um still hold over fears about not having food. Um for example, in the evening. So I wish that I I, I eat fairly late, um, like seven to eight, which is late. I would like to push it to six, but I'm still struggle because I was a night eater. I struggle with um, hunger. And um, if I'm hungry, I get afraid. It frightens me. And uh, to be afraid at night is, I, I just don't like it. So I end up eating later than I want to. And I, it's fine. I seem to be okay. It's not like I'm eating beyond, but I wish I could push it a little earlier. And it's just because I'm afraid. Uh, so I, I would like to be less afraid of just being simply hungry. Like there's nothing wrong with being hungry. It's, it's, um, um, it's, it's a natural state of mind. It's uncomfortable. I, I, I know that people can do intermittent fasting, and I actually really suggest people don't do that unless they do it properly, which means that you have to eat um, protein and fats and really cut your carbs so that you're not physically hungry because um, it's a big trigger for food addicts like me. I, I wouldn't be able to uh, do an intermittent fasting unless I was in ketosis and all that sort of stuff, which is, I think, what they say anyway. Yeah, that's I, that's a struggle that I have. And then one one other struggle is that um, it does make me um, uh, resistant to travel. I used to love traveling, but the idea of going and being squished in a in a um, airplane seat and then being hungry on top of that it's like, oh, why would I do that? Yeah, I know Venice is on the other side, but there's eight hours of torture until I get to Venice. Forget it. Have you ever been to Venice? I'm just yes, curious. Yes, I have. It's beautiful. <laughs> well, at least you've been. So at least you know what's there. At least was yeah. there when you were there. So. I mean, I have, I have done my travel early days, so. That's yeah. good. Well, all right. So we're we're winding down here. Just a couple more questions. And um, what it, what are you working on now? Like, what is life after recovery? What is it that you're excited about? Yeah, the latest thing that I'm excited about is that uh, I, I, 
I, I love the Facebook group. I just love it. Uh, and, and I really love the people who are part of it and participating. It's just a thrill to me. So that's sort of present day. Uh, and then what I'm starting to do now uh, is um, rather than write another book, because it's so hard to write a book, like a good book, not just a I don't know, whatever, um, uh, is I'm, I'm instead looking at uh, how can I manage YouTube um, videos in an educational way. And, and you know, it's also pretty exhausting to do those, but it's exciting at the same time. And uh, um, I guess that's my latest project is uh, my YouTube channel, building more and more uh, videos for education about this stuff and then how to promote them so that we get the message out. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I can't wait to see or see more. I think I saw a video from you at Christmas, right? You did something at Christmas. Yeah, I did. I did a, a rap, uh, a rap, uh, artificial intelligence song, which was great fun. And I, I also should say I'm also really looking forward to continuing on with the uh, Food Food Junkies podcast. I mean, uh, with Clarissa and Molly, we're we're all I think stellar. So, and now you as part of that team, I just think we're all stellar. Uh, and that it's a great, I think it's a great podcast. Oh, I love the podcast. I just absorbed um, Christopher Van Tulliken's book. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That spoke to me. I And now I can't talk enough about it. I mean, I'm one of those obnoxious people. I'm like, stop it talking about it. You can talk about <laughs> something else. So. Right. Okay. So I'm going to ask you our your signature question since you've already answered my signature question, but if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction, what would it be? Uh, it would be believe it. It does exist. You know, you're not just some kind of weird, um, over-the-top, super intense, restrictive person. This is a real thing. And uh, it doesn't have to be over-the-top. You can make this part of a lifestyle. It's just like, believe it. it. You intuitively know it. Now listen and believe it. And then I would also say, because... My next question would be, well, then how will I live without uh, that? You can. It's just a short period of time. Get support through that time. And then you will be on the other side where that annoying noise at the back will be calm and quiet most of the time. And uh, you'll be happy. And by the way, if you if you are overweight, you'll lose the appropriate way. And you may not be cosmetically what you want, but you'll be the weight that your body should be long-standing, not just up and down, up and down, but long-standing. So there, there's heaven on the other side. Amen. Oh my gosh. This has been so good. I, it flew by. I, I learned so much about you, Vera, and I so appreciate you being one of our first guests on the new podcast. And thank you for all the love and support. And I look forward to hearing more on the Food Junkies podcast as the year progresses. Thank right you. On. And thank you, CJ. I know you're going to do a great job. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this week for Food Junkies Recovery Stories. Make sure you join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group. I'm Sweet Enough. Please subscribe to our show so that you never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in today's story, we would appreciate a ratings on iTunes. If you've been inspired by today's show and would like to be a guest, please reach out through the email provided in the show notes. If you have additional questions, CJ is a food addictions professional and works one-on-one -on -one with clients. You can find her email address and website in the show notes. Thank you for joining us.